My name is Onyx. Thank you for joining me for Ponderings of a Pagan Priest. The topics in this podcast will vary as I am led. All that wander are not lost. Welcome to another episode of Ponderings of a Pagan Priest. I'm Onyx, uh, the Pondering Priest. And in, in this episode, I want to tackle a very numinous subject. I want to talk about love. Now, if we consider the word love and, and the many contexts for which we use it. So, you can love your mom. She's always there to protect you and on your side. You can love your best friend. You know, They laugh with you and for the first answer your text. You can also love your your romantic partner in a far more intense, intimate, and passionate way. But even though all these forms of love are driven by affection and attachment, they're all distinct. We, in, in the U.S. and in, in the English language, we tend to have one word and then for love. And then, you know, we, we throw... We throw adjectives at it like love you like a brother or platonic love or things like this. But this, there, there's two, two ancient uh, cultures that I would like to dive into a little bit and, and, and discuss what they say about love. Now, I really, I really, I really like the the ancient sages of, of India, the Hinduism, uh, the beautiful, beautiful myth about the origins of love. So, in the beginning, there was this super being called Purusha. Now, this being was, didn't have any desire, any craving, any fear, or not even any impulse to do anything at all. Because the universe, at that point, was already perfect and complete. Then the creator, Brahma, took out his divine sword and split Purusha in two. Sky became separate from earth, darkness from light, life from death, male from female. You get the idea. Each of these then set off passionately to reunite with its severed half. Now, we, as humans, we're also seeking unity and love is the word we use for this search. Now, I'm going to cross, cross culture. I'm going to jump over to another culture. And I'm going to go back to the Greeks. And, you know, there, there are so many different forms of love. But they're all driven by affection and attachment. The... We only have one word, but if we look back at the Greeks, they have many of them. In fact, seven of them in that language uh, that describe love in many, many different nuanced forms rather than just applying one word to several concepts. And first of all, there's eros. Now, eros is a romantic and passionate love. It's passion, lust, pleasure. It's an appreciation for one's physical being or beauty, and it's driven by 
attraction, and sexual longing. Now, Eros describes desire and obsession and is, the mo is most similar to what we think of as romantic, passionate love between life partners, at least in the early stages of courtship when, you know, everything is still crazy hot and you can't get enough of each other. And another word that they used for love is philia. Philia is an intimate, authentic friendship. It's characterized by intimacy, by knowing, and soul-to-soul -soul bonds. It's encouraging, it's kind, it's authentic. This is the stuff that great friendships are made of. Regardless of whether it's a platonic best friend or a romantic partner, this love is also based in goodwill or wanting what's best for the other person. Philia is this connection akin to that of soulmates. It's part destiny and part choice. And then a third word that is used is called is, is ludus. Ludus is playful. It's a flirtatious love. It's, it's infatuation. It's toying. It's flirtation. It describes the situation of having a crush and acting on it. It's absolutely rooted in having fun, whatever that means specifically to you. Ludus is definitely the love that you experience with a flink. It's casual, sexual, exciting, and zero implications of obligation. Of all the Greek words for love, this one, more than others, comes without any eros or philia attachment. <coughs> now, another word in 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 the with the Greek philosophers or ancient Greek cultures that is used for word is storga. Now storga is an unconditional familial type love. Storga is the protective kinship-based love that you experience with family members, hopefully. You can love your sister even if you don't like it. Yeah. You, can, you, you, you can love your dad despite all the mistakes he's made in raising you. This type of love, Storga, is driven by familiarity and need and is sometimes thought of as a, like a one-way love. For instance, I mean, consider a mother who loves her baby even before the baby is even aware enough to love her back. Now, Storga can also be used to describe that sense of patriotism toward a country or allegiance to a team. The fifth word that I want to discuss in Greek that identifies with love is philatia. Philatia is self-love. It's not a new concept. Um, I mean, there again, we've got, you know, even the ancient Greeks had a word to describe it. It encompasses two concepts. The first is that very healthy feeling myself, uh, care-based love that reinforces self-esteem kind of thing, like buying yourself a book or a gift or completing a big work project or, or, or taking a relaxing bath or sunning yourself or any of those things that you do to pleasure yourself, to make yourself feel good. The other concept is one of selfishness that can be pleasured. 
and fame-seeking and, and, and being highly concerned with status. This type of love, if unchecked, um, can even be the foundation for narcissism. But it is a type of love. The next type of love that I want to discuss, according to the Greeks, is called pragma. Now, pragma is a committed and a companionate type love. This is love that is built on commitment. This is love that is understanding and long-term best interest, like building a family. Over time, eros that we talked about earlier can turn into pragma as a couple grows into that honor of each other, into respecting each other and cherishing each other, accepting the differences and learning to compromise. It's an everlasting love rooted in romantic feelings and companionship. And the seventh word that I want to discuss that the Greeks use for love, a lot of people have heard it, uh, it's used in, 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 in different religious contexts and everything. It's called agape. Now this is an empathetic and a universal love. This is the love for others that includes a love for, from and for the divine, for nature, for strangers, for the less fortunate, all this. It's generally an empathetic love toward humanity itself. And is sometimes connected to altruism since it involves caring for and loving others without expecting anything in return. Now, if we talk about altruism, we're not talking about that self-denial type altruism. We're talking about that, that sort of, you know, that, that, that agape is that kind of pay-it-forward type love. You know, it's, it's, it's the love. It's people helping others selflessly. Without any any without any desire or expectation of of something coming back to them, this is agape, and this is the foundation. This type of love, agape, that unconditional, empathetic, universal love, this is the foundation of great societies and communities. So. Let's switch tracks. Let's go back over and see and, and talk about what the, the Hindu, the Vedics, talk about when they talk about love. Now, if we follow that rabbit down the hole, uh, we realize that today we, we, we tend to focus on those romantic and sexual elements of the process. Um, go back, we're talking about how we, because of the split uh, that Brahma caused with his divine sword when he split Purusha, you know, into the sky and the earth, and darkness and light, life, death, male, female, etc., etc., right? And that each of these are passionately trying to reunite with us, etc., and have. And we, 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 we say that humans, we're also seeking unity, and that we're talking about love is the word we use for that search. We tend to focus on the romantic and the sexual elements of that process. I mean, think about it. You know, millions of people use online dating sites, looking for romantic partners, um, 
the advertisers out there and the marketers are exploiting our love affair with love to sell everything from aftershave, you know, aftershave cream and lotion to sports cars to, to beer to whatever. You know, um, if, if, if someone came from another planet and, and they saw us or things, they might think, well, especially in particular us Americans, that we're obsessed with chasing love. But if you ask the ancient sages of India, they'd probably say that love is not what we're actually chasing. But we're chasing the intense but fleeting emotional high of falling in love, which generally doesn't last very long. So if, if we're chasing this falling in love feeling, yeah, what do we do? How do we keep this, this, this flame of love alive? Well, the ancient thinkers of India, they devoted a huge amount of time and attention to, the, to, this, to this issue. And they recognized and honored the power of sex and romance to jumpstart the, the emotions. But the important question is, and for them and for us, if we consider it, where do we go from here? How do we harness the intoxicating power of falling in love to create a happiness that endures even after that initial flame dies away? Now, these philosophers were pondering this topic you know, during the Vedic times, long, long, long during earlier in the BC times, you know. Um, then they folded, they, they further developed these ideas uh, during the revival of Bhakti Yoga or, or the path of divine love in the 15th century. And at this point they taught that love consists of stages through which we climb. The lower stages on love's journey aren't necessarily going to go away as we get more enlightened. But remaining stuck at the lowest rung can also cause a lot of frustration and sadness. The important thing is that we keep climbing that ladder. So here's uh, let's talk about the five stages of love, as described by you know the Vedics and the Bhakti Yoga and and and, and the uh, Hindu thinkers. Number one, kama. It's like a sensory craving. You know, the desire to merge, we talked about earlier, gets expressed through physical attraction. Or kama. I mean, technically translated kama means a craving for sense objects. But it's usually thought of as translated to sexual desire. Now, in ancient India, we got to understand that sex was not associated with shame. Um, kind of counterpoint to the Judeo-Christian myth of the fall of man. But it was a joyous aspect of human existence. And, and this topic was worthy of serious investigation. Now, we all have, have either seen or read or at least are aware of the Kama Sutra. Now, this book was written about the turn of the millennium, about the time of Christ. Uh, it's not, it's, it's, it's far more 
than just a catalog of, of sexual positions and techniques, okay? Uh, the majority of the text in Kama Sutra is a philosophy of love dealing with questions such as what sparks desire, what maintains it, and how can it be wisely cultivated? Even though the, the, the ancient saint, sages uh, honor Kama, this, this desire, as a very legitimate goal of life, they also say that we'll never achieve wholeness through the act of sex alone. So the next stage we want to talk about is something called Shringala, or rapturous intimacy. Now, sex without true intimacy and sharing can, can kind of leave us feeling empty. That's why these ancient philosophers focused on the emotional content of the experience, and they developed an especially rich vocabulary to express many, many different moods and emotions associated with this. So out of this bubbling cauldron of flea feelings is born Shringara, or romance. The lovers stir the pot of their erotic attraction by seeing one another as embodiment of all of their cravings. And they spice it up by sharing secrets, making up affectionate names for one another, playing games, giving inventive gifts. This, this imaginative play of love is symbolized in Hindu mythology by the relationship of the divine cult, uh, couple, Radha and Krishna, whose, you know, th this, these romantic adventures between Radha and Krishna are celebrated in Indian dance, music, theater, and poetry. But the ancients were realistic about what a mixed bag romance is. They didn't imagine that finding our soulmate would solve our problems, relieve our sense of unworthiness or self-doubt, or satisfy all of our emotional needs. However, Indian philosophy teaches that romantic love, enjoyed in moderation, provides a foretaste of something even greater. Then in the third stage, we encounter Maitri, or generous compassion. A lot of uh, people that use the online dating services, you know, they they, uh, they would probably say something, you know, stop waiting for love. It's within your power right now to make it happen. The way you do that, or way we do that, the ancient Indian philosophers might say, is by giving out love in little ways, wherever and whenever you can. You know, th this could mean just a simple smile at the checkout counter um, or a gift of food to the hungry or, 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 or holding on soulful, soulful hug. Mahatma Gandhi is quoted as saying, the simplest acts of kindness are by far more powerful than a thousand heads bowed in, bowing in prayer. Compassion resembles the uncomplicated love that we naturally feel toward children and pets. Sometimes this is also referred to as matro prima, which is Sanskrit term for motherly love. 
which is said to be love's most giving and least selfish form. My three is like a mother's tender love, but expressed toward all living beings, not just for your own biological children. Compassion for strangers, though, does not always come so naturally. So, loving-kindness meditations can be practiced um, where we can develop the ability to wish others well. The idea is that compassion is like a muscle that becomes stronger if we use it regularly. In the fourth stage of love that the, the Vedic philosophers, the Hindu philosophers discuss is bhakti or impersonal devotion. Compassion, that Maitri, which is expressed outwardly to all humanity and all this, that's a wonderful quality. But it's not quite the final word. Beyond interpersonal love, this tradition envisions an impersonal form in which our sympathies gradually expand to embrace the whole of creation. As a bridge to this, between these two stages, sages use a, have, have, have established a path called Bhakti Yoga. Now, you know, whether we want to investigate Bhakti Yoga and its, and, and, and its things, it, its traditions and its functions and its, and its, its rituals and all, at an, on another podcast, we might do that because it's very interesting to me. But it, Bhakti Yoga, its traditions can be translated as the cultivation of the self through the love of God or the divine. So, you know, we can we can talk about that and another thing. I think we will. I did it. Note to self. Do a podcast just on bhakti yoga because it's very, very interesting. Because bhakti yoga uh, doesn't necessarily require someone to be conventionally religious. It uh, doesn't necessarily need to be focused on God in the usual sense. Because... It can be directed toward whatever higher ideal speaks to the individual most powerfully, whether that's you know kindness, truth, social justice, doesn't matter. And so think of think of leaders like Nelson Mandela, like the Dalai Lama, um, who is incidentally considered the Bodhisattva of compassion. Um, Jane Goodall. Uh, many, 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 countless others whose love for the world was as passionate and as powerful as any romance could be. Through this, through this stage of love, we can realize that our true family is a family of life itself. And then... The fifth stage of love, according to the Hindu text, according to the Vedic philosophers, is something called Atma Prima. Now, all the four stages prior to this, each stage of love has been directed outward into the world. But, at its apex, at its very top, it comes full circle back to the self. Because Atma Prima can be translated as self-love. Now, this is not the self 
as we usually think of it, but the essential self. That self that exists at the center of all of us. Now what this means in practice is that we see ourselves in others and we see others in ourselves. The mystical poet Kabir, Indian mystical poet Kabir, uh, is, is often quoted as saying, the river that flows in you also flows in me. And of course we have the, the modern translation of Namaste, the divine in me recognizes the divine in you. It's kind of all part of the same thing. When we achieve Atma Prima, we recognize that when stripped of the accidents of our genetic heritage and upbringing, we're all expressions of the one life. That one life, that Indian creation myth is represented as Purusha. There was a Sufi visionary that we, a lot of us, have heard of called Rumi. And he gives a little voice to this paradoxical experience. I, you, he, she, we. In the garden of mystic lovers, these are not true distinctions. Atma Prima comes from the realization that beyond our personal faults and foibles, beyond our name, our personal history, the accidents of genetic of where we're born and how we're born, what we look like, we are all children of the divine. When we love ourselves and others in this profound yet impersonal way, our love loses its boundaries and becomes unconditional. Where have we heard that before? Hmm. So, we have heard, we talked about the Greek, we talked about the Hindu. So, we hear this, if we read close enough, we hear this same mystery in the religious texts of Judaism and Christianity as well. Um, I'm not familiar with the exact verse. I'm sure somebody might be able to come up with it. Um, when, when Jesus is talking about you know, things like, Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that was Jesus, or in the Old Testament, Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, you know, don't hold a grudge. These things, um, the collective, I am God. And Jesus talking about what so you do, the least you also do unto me. Uh, we talk, he talks about the kingdom of heaven being within. And Let's segue just a moment over into a concept um, and that, that's expressed in the, the Fool's Journey. If we talk about you know, using the tarot for the Fool's Journey, we, when we realize that 
the journey is the destination and that we're all hermits up to a point and we're all on our own path and we're all on our own journey but in the end our destination is always the same and it's the same for each of us and it's back to ourselves huh you see the theme here I'm going to refer over to one more text that I consider to be very moving. Um, it's not like sacred text. It's, it's, it's a part of the craft. Um, it's a part of the craft heritage. Okay? And this is this is the charge of the goddess as written by Doreen Valente. Now we, you know, I'm not going to get into an argument about where it came from, who wrote it, and all that, because it's completely irrelevant. Uh, baby and bathwater thing. Okay. So this is the charge of the goddess. And thou who thinkest to seek for me, know thy seeking and yearning shall avail thee not, unless thou know this mystery. That if that which thou seekest, thou findest not within thee. Thou wilt never find it without thee. For behold, I have been with thee from the beginning, <coughs> and I am that which is attained at the end of desire. So, what are we talking about? Let's wrap all this back together into a nutshell, okay? We, we, we realize that love, we've heard the expression, God is love. We've talked about in our pagan philosophies how we are all connected. Um, our, our Indian ancients told us that we see each other through, we see ourselves through each other. And that we love others and we love ourselves. Uh, our Greek forebears talked about seven different ways of love. And, and the highest of that being agape. <coughs> and that agape is that empathetic universal love. Our Hindu visionaries have told us that the highest form or the highest stage of love, and none of the others have to fall away to get to this point, is Atma Prima, which is that love of the essential self as it exists at the center of all of us. And we have the expression, we have the expression Namaste, and we have the, we have the quote from Kabir, uh, the river that flows in you also flows in me. Um, we have the words of Rumi, I, you, he, we, she, and the garden mystic lovers, these are not true distinctions. We have all this history throughout all of these different traditions telling us the same thing. That it's about love. And if we go back and we look at, we use the, the, the Hindu uh, origin of creation myth, the, you know, the whole... Um, you know, Parusha being that unity, that that entity that is that is beyond or without, uh, you know, without pain and without desire, and, and you know this perfect perfection, 
so to speak. You know, we, we talk about, you know, this being was without desire, beyond desire, beyond craving, beyond fear, beyond the impulse to do anything at all. Just exist in its perfection and its completeness. And then we talk about the, the, the severing of that entity, Purusha, by Brahma, the creator, into the two halves. And we talk about how the interplay there between, you know, uh, between Radha and Krishna uh, plays out. And we talk about the different stages that we can, we can learn through and we can grow through. We talk about Kama uh, and moving into Shringara. And, and then we talk about, you know, moving into Maitri, uh, motherly love uh, that is, that is un, you know, unconditional, outward type love. Uh, and then we talk about moving from that unconditional outward type love to an impersonal devotion. <coughs> and, and then moving forward into the Atma Prima or the unconditional self-love, which is not self-centered, but a recognition of the self as divine, as it is expressed in all of creation, and that we are, our true family is the family of life itself. And when I was talking about life, we're not talking about, you know, human life. We're talking about, yeah, humans, plants, animals, rocks, minerals, everything. So perhaps that would be more true to say that our true family is a family of creation. Or if you don't believe in creation, if you want to call it creation, I don't care what label you put on it, right? Whether we believe it evolved into this, or whether we believe it was created, whether we believed it was sneezed out by a god, it doesn't matter what we believe. We're here. And we're all connected. And we see ourselves in others. And we see others in ourselves. And when we learn to unconditionally love all of that, then we're moving to a higher level of understanding and a higher level of connectivity. And let's pipe dream here for a moment, okay? What if, <coughs> what if we could get humanity as a whole, each individual part of humanity, to, to move to this stage, to move to this stage, either whether we call it Atma Prima, or whether we call it, or whether we call it, agape, or whatever we call it, right? That universal, empathetic love of everything, including ourselves, through ourselves. Then, where would we be when it comes to wars over resources? Where would we come when, it, when we're talking about violence in families, violence between religions, Violence between anyone, because once we get to that point, once we get to the point to realize that agape or that atma prima, once we get to that point, we understand that there is no us and them. There is no dichotic thinking that can be that can be put in place, because we realize that we are all expressions. Of the divine and we are all divine in and of ourselves 
doesn't mean we have to like everything other people do or other expressions of the divine do. No, that's, that, that, that would be ridiculous to believe that or to think that. But we can't love. And in fact, if you move over to the Judaic tradition, love is not an expectation. It's a requirement. It's a commandment. It's legislated by the Torah. You must love. But the love is not the love that is speaking of there is not love unconditionally so that it includes absolute trust and, you know, I'm going to leave my door open, I'm going to leave, you know, none of that. You can love, you love, love. We talk about perfect love and perfect trust. Well, you know, a lot of people have a problem with that. I can't love that person. He's a, he's a, He's an abuser. Well, okay. But that's not the love we're talking about. We're talking about agape. We're talking about, we're talking about atma prima. Okay, we're talking about that. We're not talking about, you know, I, I, I love this person because of what they do. Regardless of what they do or they do not. Every single person, every single thing is a part of the divine, and we are divine in and of ourselves and everyone around us. One of the one of the things that I like to put, deposit to people is they will ask me, you know, when I try to break them out of that dichotic thinking, try to lead them out of that, not break, breaks a, breaks a difficult word. It's, it's a very violent word. I don't mean it in that way. Um, I'll lead them to the pond, and hopefully they will drink, and I plant a thought seed. They would talk to me about God, and they say that God is everywhere, everywhere. And I ask them, God is everywhere. Yes, God is everywhere. So, God, there is no place in the entire universe where God does not exist. This is true. Yes, God is everywhere. So, if God is everywhere, God exists in every space. How about in the heart of Satan? And it usually gets them to think, hopefully gets them to think, that even if you're stuck in that dichotomic us versus them attitude, even if you're stuck in that us versus them attitude, that mindset, that worldview, where it's us and them and there's a separation, then if you believe that God is everywhere, then you have to believe that God exists even in the heart of your deepest and darkest enemies. And it's that divinity, that divine, that we love. No matter where. It is everywhere. There is no matter where. That's kind of a ridiculous way to put it. No matter where. Because there is no other where. The divine exists, period, in all expressions, whether we consider them good or bad, pretty or ugly, good or evil, doesn't matter. God exists. The divine exists. And if we can escalate ourselves, if we can elevate, not escalate, elevate ourselves to the point where we love, period, 
But what kind of love are we talking about? We're talking about, we're talking about Atma Prima. Unconditional love, unconditional self-love reflected through others. We're talking about agape, empathetic, universal love. These are two words that are talking about the same concept of loving everything, including yourself, equally and fully and unconditional. I like to think of the starfish story. And that all of us little starfish are stuck on the beach. We're stranded. And that pool of universal love is the ocean. And if we can walk along that beach and pick up starfish, kiss them, and help them back into that ocean of universal love. We can't, we may not be able to make a huge difference in and of ourselves, but if each of us that, uh, that experienced that universal love, that agape, that prima, prima atma, if each of us that have experienced that and tried to exist in that, if each of us can reach out and help someone else experience that, help that starfish back into the ocean, we can make a difference to that starfish, to that one person, to that one starfish. Now, some people have heard of the hundredth monkey theory. Um, you know, the hundredth monkey theory is uh, it, it's the concept that once enough. Once enough individuals in a society reach a certain point, learn a certain skill, or whatever, then the entire the entire society will exhibit this behavior. Okay? So this is it's purely hypothetical because there's no way to have proven it. You can go and research it. You can you, you can believe it or not. Um, you know what does this this hundredth monkey effect, hundredth monkey theory, right? This is this is a phenomenon uh, where a new behavior or an idea is spread. From one throughout, from one group into all 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 the related groups, each individuals, and once a critical number of these members of the group exhibit this new behavior or acknowledge this new idea, then it spreads. Boom! It hits a critical mass. Boom! Then the entire group, humanity, will start exhibiting this new behavior or acknowledging this new idea. That's the hundredth monkey theory, or the hundredth monkey phenomenon. You know, whether whether it's true or not, isn't it wonderful to consider the possibility? Because it is definitely a possibility. Consider the possibility that if we go out and we and we help 
a starfish back into the universal ocean, that unconditional agape, that prima, my prima. If we help somebody experience that, acknowledge that idea, and then they do it. Once we help enough starfish into the ocean, we reach this critical effect, this critical mass, this, 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 it, we hit that hundredth monkey effect. And all of a sudden, by unexplained means, all the related groups, all the people, are exhibiting this behavior, or they're acknowledging this idea. They're experiencing and being a part of this universal love, this agape, this primatma. Okay? So there, in a nutshell, is what I'm talking about when you read passages from me or hear me say uh, several things, okay? One of which is you are always loved. Even in those dark times where you don't love yourself, I love you. I have been, I've been telling people for, for years that I am absolutely in love with humanity. There are several individuals in our humanity that I don't particularly like and I don't want to be around, and I don't trust. But, bottom line is, I love those people as deeply as I love myself. Because whether I like what that manifestation shows or not, they are a manifestation, they are a part of the divine, and I love them unconditionally. And I try to foster that. I'm not always successful. But I try. And I challenge you to try too. I challenge you to get that, work toward that agape, that love for others, that's, that's, that's inclusive of the divine, nature, strangers, less, it doesn't matter. It's an empathetic love toward humanity itself. It's that pay it forward love, helping up selflessly. This is the foundation of great societies. This is the foundation of communities. Work toward that prima atma, or atma prima, pardon me, the atma prima. That's a self-love that reflects that outward love as well. Because we're not talking about the self that, it, that, that, that we, we, we normally think of. We're talking about the essential self. What's the essential self? It's the divine self. That self that exists at the center of all of us. The river that flows in you also flows in me. There is no separation. Our, our sight of, of separation is only an illusion. It's an illusion of separation. Once we get to the point where we love us. Love I, love me, because me, you, he, she, we. Remember, in the Garden of Mystics, according to Rumi, in the Garden of Mystic Lovers, there are, these are not true distinctions. There is no difference. Connectivity. And that third thing that I'll mention that you'll hear me say quite often is referring to the starfish story that I pulled in there at the end, and, and pulling in the hundredth monkey effect that I 
that I, that I just chalked in there for a little bit of spice, you'll hear me saying, one starfish at a time, until the hundredth monkey. I want you to remember, no matter what, I love you, even if you don't love yourself. Learn to love yourself. Learn to love others. Perfect love does not mean that I have to sleep with everybody. Okay? <laughs> Just as a chuckle at the end. So, I challenge you to think about what I've said. And I ask you that if you disagree with me, please let me know. Let me know. You can find me on Facebook. My public figure profile is Onyx Raven. Um, you can find you can contact me through uh, Raven's Nest Media. Uh, you can contact me through International Pagan Radio. Uh, I'm easy to find. I'm easy to get a hold of. Uh, you can even go to the Anchor site that hosts this podcast, and you can leave me a voice message, and I would be happy to incorporate it into one of my podcasts. So, until next time, I love you. And in all things, may you blessed be.